This week, we're going to be looking at the dramatic scene in Jesus' life that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he experienced such intense mental and spiritual and emotional turmoil as he looked ahead. So Mark 14, starting in verse 32, Mark writes, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, as we look at this solemn scene, we pray that the Holy Spirit would instruct us and convict us and move our hearts to be more like Christ and to love him more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I uh, looked at the commentaries this week, I was struck by a comment that Sinclair Ferguson said about this passage. He said that the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Uh, nothing so solemn in Jesus' life, I think, than this great moment of emotional turmoil and conflict that he has in this garden. In fact, if we would look at Luke's gospel, Luke being a doctor, he was interested in the fact that Jesus was so in agony that his sweat became like globules of blood. It goes on to say that his turmoil was so great that the father sent an angel into the garden to strengthen Jesus in his moment of agony. What must Jesus have been going through for he as the son of God himself to be so overwhelmed that an angel would be sent to strengthen him. But as we dive into his agony here in this scene, we actually, in his agony, find our comfort because we can see that we have a Savior who actually can sympathize with us in our moments of deep distress and, and turmoil. And we see that he's actually removed the sting of our darkest hour. In his God-forsakenness, we find our God-acceptedness. So as we 
observe Jesus in the garden, I want us to see two things from the experience that he had there. First, from his experience, I want us to see the horror of sin and then to look at the heart of submission, the horror of sin and the heart of submission. First, in the garden, from his example, we see the horror of sin. I want us to set the scene. If you take a look at verse 32, uh, I want to remind us of where they've been when we left Mark off uh, in mid-November. Um, they had just enjoyed, he and the disciples, their last Passover meal together, and they celebrated their first communion. And it was a, a great feast. And then Jesus started at the end of the meal to say very strange things like, you all are going to deny me. And now that that strange meal is done, Jesus leads them here in verse 32 to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a garden that was located down at the foot of the Mount of Olives. He tells his disciples to have a seat while he goes and he prays. If you take a look at verse 33, he takes with him the inner circle of disciples, Peter and James and John. I want you to imagine as Peter and James and John leave the other 12 and walk with Jesus, as they, as they look at Jesus, they begin to see a massive change come over him. In verse 33, it says, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. They never would have seen him like this before. They'd seen him angry. They'd seen him compassionate. They'd spent many uh, times with him in the three years, but never would they have seen him so unsettled as now. I wonder what was going through their heads, greatly distressed and troubled. Now, I'm interested, how many of you here this morning have the KJV, you old school folks in the room? Okay. I think the KJV actually gets closer to what the Greek is saying here when it says that he's greatly distressed and troubled because the KJV translated it, translates it, he was sorely amazed as he looked at what was coming. He knew his hour had come. As he looked ahead at what he was about to endure, he was actually amazed, surprised at the magnitude of what lay before him. So amazed, in fact, that if you look at verse 34, he tells Peter and James and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The amount of emotion, the amount of anxiety, the amount of overwhelmingness brings him to even feeling like he might die. Kent Hughes in his commentary said, this was a sorrow that threatened life itself. Impossible, we may think, but that is because we are not as holy as Jesus is, nor can we imagine the terrors he saw. We are called to simply believe God's word here. Jesus came close to death as he looked at the horror that overwhelmed him. What did he see that did this to him? What did he see around the corner? Well, Mark tells us that he saw a cup. A cup? Yeah. Take a look at verse 36. Verse 36, as Jesus prays to the Father, he says to him, remove this cup from me. What is Jesus referring to here? Jesus is actually adopting Old Testament language that the prophetic writers used. Every time that uh, the prophetic writers referred to the cup or a cup, they used it in two senses. One, 
to refer to the sin of mankind, and secondly, to refer to God's wrath upon mankind for their sin. As Jesus enters into the garden, knowing that his hour has come, he anticipates more that scares him than just the flogging and crucifixion that's ahead. Even worse, he sees the sin of all the world that will soon be placed upon him as the Messiah and the curse of God's wrath coming down upon him in that moment as well. See, in Jesus' agony here, what Mark wants us to see is the utter horror of sin. He wants us to see what sin did and does to the heart of Jesus. That as we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am to see what he saw when he looked at my sin. You are to see what he saw when he looked at your sin. I was reminded um, of Genesis 6 this week in studying this passage. Um, those of you who, like me, have started over your Bible reading plan for the new year, uh, those of you who are doing that are probably reading through the book of Genesis right now in the beginning of the year. And in Genesis 6, we read about the flood, how uh, sin had so overwhelmed the world that God just decided to wipe the whole world out in his judgment except for the family of Noah. And what does, the, what does Moses say about what was going on in God's heart as he looked at the world at that time? This is what he said. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It's the same picture here. Jesus looks at all the sin of mankind and it grieves him to his heart. But what is different from the flood account is in the flood account, God brings his judgment to bear on mankind for their sin. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will take on the, God's judgment upon himself for mankind's sin. What was happening as Jesus prepared for the cross? What did he know was about to happen? Paul tells us in his writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ, who was sinless, would take on all the sins of the world, my sin, your sin. He would absorb God's wrath upon the cross out of his great grace and mercy. And in the prospect of this, he was absolutely overwhelmed. I love how the Gettys put it in their hymn, Gethsemane Hymn, which I wish we would have sung this morning. Um, you can give a hard time to Mason after this service. Uh, but the Gettys write it this way. What led him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's helpless race, for every broken soul. No sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry, all mingled in this poison cup, and yet he drank it all. When we see him agonizing over this prospect, it should cause us 
to be spiritually sober. It should actually cause us to want to pursue sanctification, to, to, to see our sin as horrific as Jesus saw it, to see our sin do what it did to the heart of Jesus and cause us, knowing that he would choose to take that sin upon himself, make us want to turn away from sin and to pursue righteousness. First of all, we see the horror of sin, but second of all, Jesus shows us in the garden the heart of submission, the heart of submission. I think perhaps even more shocking than the turmoil that he experienced is the prayer that he prays there in the garden, showing his heart of submission to the Father. Uh, take a look at verse 35. In verse 35, he leaves Peter, James, and John. He goes on a little farther. Another gospel tells us it was about a stone's throw away. And he throws himself on the ground and prays, prays to the Father. What does he pray in verse 36? Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's showing that no amount of self-preservation will keep him from submitting himself to God's ultimate will and plan. When we enter into our own personal moments and seasons of agony and distress, of suffering and trial, sometimes it can be hard for us to know exactly what to pray, how to pray. And Jesus is showing by his own example here, how can we have a heart of submission even in our great moments of agony when we would rather not go through what we see coming down the pike in our lives? Jesus shows in this prayer in verse 36, how does he start? Uh, he starts by showing his absolute faith in the Father's power. Abba, Father, he says, all things are possible for you. He believed in his Father's goodness and his ability to carry all things out according to his great and wise plan. He knew that God, the Father, could either deliver him out of his suffering or could deliver him through his suffering. And then he just straightforwardly tells him what his request and desire is in the moment. Take a look again at verse 36. He just says it as it is. Remove this cup from me. He sees what's coming, and he essentially says, Father, I know what the plan is, but if there's a plan B, I'm all ears right now. I'm all ears. Who is he praying to? He's praying to Abba, Father. He knows the Father can handle his requests. The Father wants to hear from our hearts. He doesn't always have to answer yes, but we have his ear with our own desires. But the clincher is what, how Jesus finishes the prayer in verse 36. He qualifies his request. Remove this cup from me yet, yet, not what I will but what you will. Jesus is following his own teaching in the Lord's Prayer here, isn't he? What was one of the requests in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done. I think it's one of the lessons in the Christian life as we live out our walk of faith in the moments of suffering and trials to believe that God's version of our story is infinitely more beautiful than the version of the story that we could write for ourselves. You just think, think through your life. Think about those moments where you were laid flat. The darkest hours of your life, 
where you prayed and prayed and prayed that you might be delivered from that season, from that circumstance, and God said no. But as you look back on those moments and you see where you are now, in a strange and mysterious way, aren't you thankful that he said no? Isn't what he has done for you so much more beautiful than you could have thought for yourself? Paul reminds us of what God's will is for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. What is God's will? It's far more abundant than all we can ask or think. And so Jesus says, Father, this is what I want, but not what I will, what you will. J.C. Ryle in his commentary has this great quote where he says, to take patiently whatever God sends, to like nothing but what God likes, to wish nothing but what God approves, to prefer pain if it pleases God to send it, to forego ease if God does not think it fit to bestow it, to lie passive under God's hand and know no will but his. This is the highest standard at which we aim. And of this, our Lord's conduct in Gethsemane is a perfect pattern. This is the great evidence that we belong to Jesus, that he actually has grabbed our hearts and transformed us and brought us into saving grace. Uh, what is the great evidence? One of the great evidences is that in those dark moments, we actually are wrestling to submit ourselves to God's will rather than kicking against it, just as Jesus did here in the garden. He shows us the horror of sin, and he teaches us the heart of submission. But how do we apply these things? I think too often we can put ourselves in the hero's position, and we see ourselves in Jesus here in this garden, uh, where I think that Mark actually wants us to see ourselves not in the shining example of Jesus, but in the not-so-shining example of the disciples. Because what have the disciples been doing this entire time that Jesus is agonizing? They're doing what I hope none of you are doing right now. Uh, they are snoozing. Uh, how baffling is this scene? I never actually, I have to admit to you, I never really contemplated just how baffling this really is that they could fall asleep in this moment. Here is Jesus their greatest and best friend, their master, the one they've spent three whole years with, the one that they know is their Messiah. They've never seen him so upset like this. And in that moment of his life, they fall asleep on him. Uh, there's no other parallel that I can think than uh, you mothers here who were in the midst of labor and that agony. If you looked across the room in the delivery room and you saw your husband just snoring away, like, what is going on? These are not the kind of friends that you want. And remember who these three were. Peter, James, and John. The sons of thunder, who earlier in the gospel said, when Jesus asked, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? What did they say? Yeah, we've got this. We can drink the cup. And then just in the last passage that we looked at back in November, Peter in the Last Supper saying, even though all these chumps fall away, I'm not going to fall away. And here they are, dead asleep, unable to do what Jesus had asked them to do. What had he asked them to do? Take a look at verse 38. In verse 38, he tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter 
into temptation. They cannot bring themselves to stay awake, to pray, and to watch. And I think what Mark wants us to see here is that their physical sleepiness is an example and a warning to us of our spiritual sleepiness. That just like them, the spirit is willing, but all too often that sinful flesh is weak and battles against us to keep us on our game, to keep us watching, to keep us relying on the Lord by prayer. How is it that we will cultivate, like Jesus, a horror for sin? How is it that, like Jesus, we will cultivate a heart of submission? Only by doing what Jesus tells us here, to watch, to pray, to, like him, wrestle earnestly with the Lord in prayer. Kent Hughes says, we must understand that Jesus invited the three to be with him in Gethsemane, not because he needed the company, but because they needed to learn, especially in their presumption, the secret of stealing their lives for service. When Jesus was overtaken with horror, he told them, remain here and watch. Watch what? Watch me go and pray. He wanted them to watch and observe the spiritual battle, the battle that can only be won by wrestling earnest prayer. I ask you, we're now in, how many weeks are we in the new year? Two weeks? How are we doing at staying awake spiritually and praying? I was struck two weeks ago, uh, Friday mornings, we have a men's uh, book study that meets at George's restaurant uh, at 6 a.m. I always say, you got to be a man to wake up that early and come, uh, but you're all welcome. And uh, what we had done is we made a resolution for ourselves in the new year that uh, we would come together on that first Friday of the new year, and each man around the table would share his personal plan for how he would be involved in God's word for the year. So we did. We went around the table and we shared our personal plans. And then we started studying the book that we're studying. And the author was challenging us about the place of personal prayer in the Christian life. And Jonathan Reese spoke up and he said, isn't it interesting? We had the forethought to make personal plans to be in God's word for 2024. But none of us really thought to make a personal plan of prayer for 2024. I bet to wager that many of us here probably have plans to be in God's word for this year. I bet a very small minority of us have a plan to be watchful in prayer that we may not be led into temptation for this year. How are we doing with being awake and with praying that we may not fall into temptation and that we may not fall asleep like the three did? Well, how does this passage end? This passage ends with Jesus giving himself over to the betrayers. Take a look at verse 41. He tells the disciples, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Guys, get up, time to go. My betrayers are here and I must hand myself over to them. He shows that he is ready for the test of Golgotha. 
But in order to be ready for the test of Golgotha, he had to pass the test of Gethsemane. No Gethsemane, no Golgotha. And in the same way, we don't have Gethsemanes ahead of us. Only Jesus had his Gethsemane. But all of our small little tests of trials and suffering that God gives us in this lifetime is preparing us for a greater day, a greater day that we are warned of in the New Testament, that we might be strengthened to withstand and be held up and be ready for that great and evil day that we're not sure when will come, but we are sure is coming. And what is our duty? To, like Jesus, follow in his footsteps to throw ourselves down to the ground and wrestle our hearts into submission to God, that we might be ready to pass the test when the test comes, to prefer his will over our own, and to see any other option as utterly horrific as he sees. Jesus says in Luke 21 about what we're preparing for in verses 34 through 36, he says, watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We walk in our Savior's footsteps. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's stay awake and be prayerful. Let's pray.